0: We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. And some of those pitfalls are that as women's discipleship becomes more and more a facet of the marketplace, then the marketplace begins to shape the product. It begins to shape what discipleship looks like. And the problem for that is discipleship isn't necessarily about
1: what we want so much as what we need. Hi, I'm Trillian Newbell and I'm excited to announce our series, Better Together, The series captures our desire to partner together as men and women in the church and beyond to advance the kingdom with mutual support and care. Better Together will address a wide range of topics from sexual abuse, leadership, women in work, women's ministry, and so much more. Our goal is to inform and equip listeners on matters most important to women in the areas of church, home, and work. Better Together. I am excited and honored, really, that Hannah Anderson is joining us. Hannah is the author of three books, All That Is Good, Humble Roots, and Made for More. She ministers beside her husband in small church ministry near and around and in the Blue Ridge Mountains area. So I am so excited. Hannah, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Oh, I'm so glad to be with you, Choya.
1: I don't want to waste a bit of time because you have a lot of wisdom and you've written a book on discernment. And I think you share a lot of ideas and thoughts via Twitter and your own podcast. Tell us the name of your podcast again. Um, it's Persuasion Podcast, and I co host that with Aaron Straza. Yes. I want to dive straight into thinking about our current Me Too Church to for us. SBC2 era that we are in, and how does that relate to a small church? Because sometimes I think our focus can be on the large churches and and maybe the fall of pastors and, and how these terrible situations are handled in a large church scale, but it really affects small churches as well. So First, if you could give us any insight into how the dynamics of small churches and, and what you see in this culture and in this area and how it's affecting, that would be great.
0: Yeah, you're so right, Julia. Um, I think we do tend to see the big scandals, and they tend to have this large-scale bureaucratic kind Mm -hmm. of potential cover-up associated with it where um, a victim can get lost in the gears of the church. Um, And I think we do see these examples in big churches, but none of us are somehow immune to the problems that come from abuse or communities trying to grapple with abuse. And so we've seen it even at a local level of trying to reconcile not just the larger Me Too movement, but the kinds of situations we come across within our own communities, both within our small town and within our church. And one of the things that I've noticed on a small church level is sometimes we want to preserve the stability, not just of the organization, but of the relationships and the community. And sometimes we can develop an idea that evil's out there because a lot of um, smaller communities are very tight. Right. Yes. So we, we, we prioritize our bonds. We prioritize our relationships and that one on one. And it really does feel like family um, in a lot of ways in small churches. And so the dynamics in a small church when it comes to um, a question of abuse or a, a situation that needs to be handled are probably more akin to a family grappling with abuse than an organization grappling with abuse. And sometimes it's almost just too close and too personal for us to have the clarity we need.
1: What does it look like? I spoke to a lady recently who is from a rural area in Tennessee, and she was sexually assaulted. But everyone in the community—because you were so right, it's a tight community. Everybody knows everyone— they almost i would say ignored it so so they pretend they just wanted to sweep it under the rug and pretend like everything's okay but the reality was she's hurt and needs care and comfort but there's absolutely nowhere for her to go and so i don't know if that's something that you've seen but when you talk about this family kind of protection, I've seen that where families, yeah. they they will protect their, <laughs> their name, they will protect their reputation. And so I can see that in, a, in the small church, at least in this particular situation. And so practically, how does that work itself out? Right. So for our
0: community, and I think ours is no different than any other tight-knit small community. Um, We we live by two rules when it comes to conflict. And it's not just abuse. It's any form of conflict. We tend to be pretty conflict-averse. And so the the rules that we have are least said, soonest mended, and time will heal all ills. Mm. And I have actually encountered these kind of narratives in other situations. And when you take that kind of approach to conflict- not resolution, but lack of resolution, yeah. conflict avoidance, it becomes really, really painful in cases of abuse. But, but this does tend to be kind of the mode of operation. It's, well, let's just not talk about it, and then it doesn't exist. So it's not the same as let's sweep it under the rug because we want to preserve the organization. It's almost like a form of denial that this is too much. We cannot fathom this kind of evil. And therefore, if we just don't think about it, it doesn't exist. And also, there is a, a sense that time will heal all ills. And I think that makes sense in small communities that are generated. Because we do tend to have a longer, mem- like a longer sense of time, right? So, so we are thinking in terms of not just our immediate lives, but our grandparents and great grandparents and the children to come. And so, our sense of time is a little bit different. And sometimes we believe that it's just the passage of time that will take care of things, and that's not the case. But those tend to be the dynamics that make it difficult for small communities to deal with any kind of conflict,
1: but particularly with issues of abuse. Wow. Um, I think you're exactly right, especially thinking of the time will heal. I believe that is something that was said to me from her, was in, a, in time, all things will be better and we'll just get over it. yet there's trauma there. And so there needs to be a solution. So here's the question. What are... The solutions to this? Or or is there any resource that you would point a small church to in order to um, —wrong the rights is not the best way to say this—in order to educate and put in right and helpful procedures for actually dealing with things? What would you suggest? Well, one of the things that we've learned to do is to rely
0: on the people in the community that already are working in spaces that have abuse policies. So we have a lot of teachers, police officers in our community. And so there are people that are in the community that know what is the standard outside of the church. And they're often church members. So if a a small church may not be able to listen to a pastor on these issues, they might listen to their fellow congregants. So if there are teachers that say, yeah, this is what we have to do in school when something comes up, or a police officer says, yeah, this is mandatory reporting, um, those kinds of people, those members of the congregation become vital to the process that the church is going to need to go through. Because one of the things that we do have to immediately turn to is we have to deal with the legalities. We have to turn things over to the civil authorities and allow that process of justice to start. And instead of trying to the pastor to be the authority and say, we have to do this, it does help to say, well, let's draw on the members who already have this knowledge. Let's bring them to the front. Let them be the voices that convince their own community to do this. And I've noticed a lot of times in smaller tight-knit communities, that's who they'll listen to.
1: Hmm. No, that makes sense. Small group community activism in some ways from from people within. That does make sense. And I I want to just ask you one last question in regards to this, and then we're going to change gears. What hope do you have in regards to how small churches in more maybe rural areas that um, maybe are a little bit more insular even, what hope do you have in dealing with these issues and topics?
0: Mm. I have a lot of hope in the fact that this next generation of pastors has awareness about these issues. And so what's fascinating about small church communities is they often become a place for young pastors, for good or bad. Um, it is a common thing for a young man to start his ministry in a, in a smaller church setting um, just because they... Um, that's what they can afford, or that's the level at which he is prepared to minister. And so they're coming into the communities having been trained in seminary or having awareness that these are issues. And so one thing that I think will eventually change the entire culture is that our leaders are coming into awareness. And even though they may not be able to be the authority on these conversations, they at least can say, hey, here's a different way of Acting, We're not going to just default to time will heal. We're not going to just default to least said to mended. We actually have a responsibility. So I actually am very encouraged by the pastors that I see that know what to do um, that might have been different than in the past.
1: That's great. Well, currently the ERLC and the SVC is working to develop resources and also to equip pastors and train this next generation, including in seminary. So we are hoping to roll out various, not just products, but resources to help equip so that the next generation will be able to better handle these these issues but we're not waiting we want them to to be able to handle it now and um by the grace of god next year we will have a different story and that's my prayer and hope as well um okay so i want to change gears a little because you have written quite a bit about women's ministry and marketing and um how women are flocking to these various organizations and outlets and parachurch ministries. And there is a phenomenon. And I'll just say, I don't see it so much in the African American community. And I just do want to say that because I do think we need to name the culture maybe a little bit more clearly. But this Rachel Hollis um, I haven't read any of her books, and I'm not here to critique them. But she has written two books: "Girl, Wash Your Face" and "Girl, Stop Apologizing," and they are bestsellers. I don't, I don't know much about it, but I understand that they are um, heavy on maybe some rules and self-help. But I saw you recently tweeting about this phenomenon and why women are flocking to these self-help books. And I would just love for you to expound on some of the things that you were sharing. Mm.
0: And I so appreciate you making that cultural distinction that this is a phenomenon I'm observing primarily among white evangelical women, um, particularly in spaces that may not have a robust um, discipleship ministry within the church or avenues for ministry within the church um, for women— for growth and for teaching other women. And so what often happens in those spaces um, is that women go outside of the church to develop their ministries or to develop their leadership or their platform. Um, and what ends up happening is as women's discipleship becomes more and more parachurch, it t- tends to enter into the marketplace. It tends to become a facet of publishing or conferences um, and even now online, you know, you see a lot of ministries growing just digitally. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing, but it comes with a unique set of um, pitfalls. And some of those pitfalls are that as women's discipleship becomes more and more a facet of the marketplace, then the marketplace begins to shape the product. It begins to shape Mm what discipleship looks like, what growth looks like, and that will always be what the consumer wants. What the consumer will buy is the standard of the marketplace. The problem for that is discipleship isn't necessarily about what we want so much as what we need. And so it creates this kind of scenario where the resources we're producing, what the marketplace is giving out taps into what the consumer feels she needs and will buy. And that's very different from the kind of discipleship we might see within the church where we're being confronted by our need to grow, by where we do not measure up to the Scripture, by uh, where we need to be conformed to the image of Christ.
1: Mm. No, this is really good. I I will say— it's interesting because you and I are both authors so mm. we are we publish books we write books we enter into the marketplace but I can safely say and I think that's just okay for me to say this Hannah neither of us will probably be bestsellers <laughs> I right. mean maybe maybe we will but it would be some act of probably miracle because we're just because of the the what we write about and and the challenging um Christ-centered Etc so there is, however, a market because people, though neither of us are bestsellers, people are purchasing these books. Well, how do you encourage the person who is like maybe you and I, and we are trying to, trying to equip and serve and because we're using the gifts that God has given us, um, but yet neither of us will likely have our books crazy falling off the shelves. And, um, and Hannah, I might b- bite these words by ne- this time next year and whenever or whenever your next book is published. But I'm just saying, what what do you how do you encourage because we're both in the marketplace. Would do you agree right. with what I'm saying and where Absolutely. I'm going? okay,
0: And a lot of these observations only came because I was in the midst of this wrestling of of being in the marketplace and facing the question of, huh, I'm never going to be a women's bestseller. Like my books can't compete with what's on the marketplace and the women's demographic. And so I had to come up with a new definition of what faithfulness quote-unquote, success looked like for me because if I had measured my ministry and my calling based off of what the marketplace was delivering and the dynamics of the marketplace, I could feel like a complete failure. I'm never going to be able to top what is being out there. You know, our books just can't compete with that. And so what I have had to recognize is that This space is what God has sovereignly ordained for me. He has allowed me to write in the marketplace, and I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful that it has become a place of ministry, even if it's outside of the church in that sense. But what I am always conscious of Mm -hmm. is that I am writing to serve the church. So even if I'm positioned in the marketplace, I'm not detached from the church. I am writing for the church. I am writing for the growth of Christians. I am not being propelled by the forces of the consumer or the marketplace. And so that changes how I define success. It changes what my goals are. And it gives me a level of contentment to say, as long as I'm producing faithful, good work, that benefit people in their Christian walk, that's what God has called me to. That can be really hard because if you listen to the marketplace to tell you what you should be doing, you're going to end up with messages like, Girl, wash your face, get your act together. If you just follow these steps, you can live the fulfilling life. And you need to up your game, and you need to be more ambitious, and you need to get more followers, and you need to—and those are the messages that really are a weight and a form of legalism um, in the work we do. And I've had to learn to say, you know, I'm called by the voice of God, and this is what He's called me to, and as long as I'm faithful to that, then I'm okay. Okay.
1: That is excellent. And I hope that encourages any inspiring writer. I don't want to put words in your mouth, Hannah, but I think what you're saying is you're not discouraging people from pursuing the ministry of writing that would end up in the marketplace, but it's about being faithful to God's word and faithful to the church in our pursuit. And and so what do you think is the draw Why are why are women so attracted to these books? And I think you alluded to it, but I wanted to just hear it plainly. Yeah. Why do you think well, they're I, attracted? Yeah.
0: Well, it's a lot of different things. Part of it is we live in a culture of self-creation, mm. where it's not just women, it's everybody. We love self-help books because they give us a sense of control over our lives. They Tell us that if you just can do these things, then your every dream will come true. And it's part of the American dream, right? It's the rags to riches story. It's the water we swim in that we believe we have greater autonomy and greater agency over our life than we actually have. And so these books appeal to that sense of pride and power to say, yes, if I just do these things... I can become what I want to be. And, and that really is a flaw in the way we think of vocation. Um, and that's more broadly across our culture. It's not just women. But I think, sure. it, I think it appeals to women, particularly in this age, because we have not had people talking to us about vocation outside of maybe the domestic realm for decades. Mm. So for men, men have been having conversations about career and calling and vocation for a long time. And there's been kind of a vacuum for women to consider their lives outside of domesticity. And so now in this vacuum is rushing all of these answers about creating the life you want, creating the career you want, creating, um, you know, the the media empire you want. And it's appealing to us because it does give us that sense of power. It's also a conversation that we need to have. And maybe faithful voices aren't having it as loudly. And so these voices are available to us. And And I think it also taps into that beautiful life that we all long for. Um, it's kind of that Instagrammable life <laughs> that we're all trying to have. And so if someone can present herself and say, I attained it, you can do it too, then that gives us the sense that maybe life doesn't have to be about suffering or it doesn't mm. have to be mundane. It can be beautiful and glamorous, just like her life is beautiful and glamorous.
1: Hmm. But then it ends up empty, right? It do- yes. One of the things that I've been thinking that we just have to be careful with is not to, I guess pile on this Rachel Hollis phenomenon person because we know the truth we know we know as gospel believing christians walking out our faith that the truth is there is suffering and that even the hollises who pretend potentially that there isn't or that she isn't that she is and so i've i've been thinking of how is how can we instead of critique which we need to critique how can we offer something better and if is there a way and and like we've both kind of determined we likely won't be massively huge in the marketplace but there there has to be something better so you mentioned something and i just think this is a one step you mentioned vocation so i wonder if one area that we could Could focus in on is vocation and writing and producing material so that women have an alternative solution or alternative offering, something else besides what what is being sold to them. What are your thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, I have to confess that one of my temptations is to become agitated Hmm. and to become anxious when I see these kinds of messages gaining traction. Um, And I see how widely they're being disseminated and how many people are buying the books. And I can get on social media or get on Instagram and just become very fretful about it and angsty. And if I were to respond out of that angst and that agitation, it wouldn't necessarily result in life for people. And my husband reminded me of this this weekend because I was all angsty about something I had seen online. And our Bible reading in church on Sunday had been Psalm 37, which is fret not thyself for evildoers. Um, And let me just read this section. This is Psalm 37. Do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong, for they wither quickly like grass and wilt like tender green plants. Trust in the Lord and do what is good. Dwell in the land and live securely. And I think the way the scripture guides us when we're facing things or messages that we're like, this is wrong, it it calls us up short and says, don't spend your time and energy fretting about this. Get busy doing good. And it's actually a parallel passage to Philippians 4, 6, 7, 8, 9. Uh, this is where Paul says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your requests be known unto God. And he goes immediately into, finally, brothers, whatsoever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, you know, dwell on these things. And so there's this sense that the way we combat false messages is not by standing around being agitated by them but by producing good things Mm -hmm. and getting busy seeking goodness and actively giving resources or doing whatever we're called to do to be an avenue and a channel of good. And like you said, it's not that we can't critique and it's not that we don't point out where messages go wrong, but our heart has to be directed toward goodness, not just in opposition to negative things.
1: Mm. In my head, the words, all right, let's get to work, kept coming into my head. Absolutely. We've got work to do. And um, so I hope that encourages those who are listening to get to work. We have work to do. And I, I have one last question, and then I want us to just end on some gospel hope. But we've been speaking about this in generalities. Does this affect small churches? And if so, how do you see it?
0: Absolutely. Um, One of the things that we see in our community is because we tend to be more, um, I wouldn't say insulated, but our world revolves around what's happening locally. We don't get caught up in a lot of the broader conversations until we go to like a Christian bookstore Mm. or we listen to the Christian radio. So the avenues where Christian teaching is delivered to us tends to be the major publishing platforms or the major, you know, communication platforms. So whatever is being promoted there is what will reach us. And what's fascinating about that is that small communities actually are more likely to know the best sellers um, on the Christian list than they are like the good sustainable resources that you and I know. Um, You almost have to dig a little bit to find the authors that we love and trust. And so for small communities, by the time these things filter down to them, they only see the headliners. And again, because of how we talk about the marketplace, a certain message is being delivered to them. And so especially as I'm working with women here, and what I'll find is they will have encountered those headliner voices. And what you can't do is react to them. Mm -hmm. You can't say, oh, that's a terrible book. You shouldn't be reading it. Um, Because for them, this was a Christian book that they wanted to read. And so it shows not a rejection of other good stuff. Their choice to pick that up is not, I picked this up in spite of everything else that's available, Mm. is I picked this up because I wanted to know God. And this was brought to me and given to me and told me that this would make my life better and I would grow. So you've got to honor that desire um, and not immediately read it as you're choosing that instead of something else.
1: Hmm, that's such a humble approach, and it and it really could lead to greater conversation and and suggestions of uh, mm-hmm. other resources. So I, I love that. It's a humble and kind approach. I think as we're trying to love our neighbor as ourselves and really live in community together. So Hannah, let's end on some gospel hope for all of this. What is our gospel hope?
0: Well, our hope is that Jesus Christ has redeemed us from the law and that He has equipped us to good works. One of my favorite passages is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, where it talks about, yeah, we are saved through faith, and it's not of ourselves, but then it goes right into, and there are works that God has ordained for you to walk in. So our good works don't save us, but God is equipping us to good work. And I just find that so hopeful that He has good things planned for us and that He wants to use us in the spread of His gospel.
1: Hmm. Amen. Well, thank you so much, Hannah, for being on. This has just been a, a joy and insightful, as I knew it would be. Hannah, if someone were to try to find you, where would they go?
0: Well, I have a website. It's sometimesalight.com. That's all one word. I'm on Twitter at sometimeslight. I am on Instagram at Hannah Anderson and on Facebook at Hannah Anderson.
1: Excellent. Well, thank you so much for listening. This has been Trillia Newbell and Hannah Anderson on the Better Together podcast series for the RLC.